Well, hello there, listeners. It's Susie New here, President of the Australian Society of Anaesthetists, and welcome to our podcast, Australian Anesthesia, where we talk all things relevant to anaesthesia in Australia. In this episode, I'm talking with Dr. David Borshoff, who's an anaesthetist from Perth in Western Australia. He wrote the book, literally. He's written the book called The Anaesthetic Crisis Manual, and he's also edited a few other crisis manuals. And because of this, he now owns and runs a publishing company. And who better to be chair of the ASA's Communications Committee? In this episode, we're predominantly talking about the Anaesthetic Crisis Manual. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. And to ASA members, I'll let you know how you can get a discounted copy at the end of the episode. They say that behind every great book is an even better story. And that is certainly the case here. And naturally, it's got to do with resuscitation. So I won't hold you up much longer. Let's get into it. What I wanted to talk to you about is this that you must know and love. Indeed. It's consumed 10 years of my life. (laughs) So what we're talking about is the anaesthetic crisis manual. Obviously, the people at home can't see. Did it consume 10 years of your life, did you just say? I did. I did. It came about after a crisis that I was involved in in the theatre next door in 2004. And it was following that that I then took myself off to the simulator. I think I did the simulator three times over the next 18 months because although we had a good result from the resuscitation, as most of us do, the days after we're involved in a resuscitation, we look at how things could have gone better. And on reflection, I thought it was absolute chaos. And I was actually surprised we got such a good result. I want to remind you that this is in 2004. So this is 16 years ago. And a lot has happened in the last 15 years in terms of simulation and training and cognitive aids and human factors and protocols. I think in 2004, when I was involved in this, we were probably on the tail end of the old style crisis management of doing the best you can with the tools you have without necessarily having any particular teamwork, delegation and order involved in the process. I didn't realise it started 10 years ago. I think there's still something more in there because many of us have been involved in resuscitations, but many of us don't go on and write a manual that helps everyone else. When you say there's more involved... I don't know exactly what the trigger was other than the patient was part of the process. I mean, the human side of this story is that the patient was an American visitor. And I'm going to tell this story, Susie, and you can uh, edit it down, but I'm just going to share it with you anyway, because it, it is it, it was probably the most significant event of my career. So I'm going to just share it. Perfect. A delightful lady. She was about 60 at the time and not dissimilar to my mother. So there was probably a little bit of transference going on. I just really clicked with her preoperatively. I anaesthetized her first time round before this crisis. She was visiting and had fallen and fractured a hip and she needed surgery. I happened to be the doc on call at the private hospital and spoke to her for about 45 minutes preoperatively. That's not my normal preoperative interview time. 
particularly after work when you're wanting to get home. But she was obviously engaging. She was smart. Her son was a doctor. She was a school teacher, as my mother was, and we just clicked. I anesthetized her the next day and things went relatively well. Then the next time I caught up with her was a week later when she had arrested in the theatre next door to my theatre. And one of the nurses had come over and said to me, you know, the lady that you anaesthetised uh, last week, it's, it's not looking good in the theatre next door. So I was in that unenviable position of having a patient on the table and knowing that this woman was in dire straits next door. She hadn't arrested at that stage, but I could tell from the nurse's look and what she was saying that, that things were going pear-shaped. So I made the calculated decision because it was the theatre immediately next door. I had my anaesthetic nurse monitor the patient while I slipped out and just had a look in through the little window of the theatre next door. And it wasn't looking good. There was no arterial line trace. The patient didn't look well. And the, that things weren't under control. So I went back into my theatre and, and thought, I can't interfere with somebody else's anaesthetic at this stage. And I checked on my patient and then made the decision that I actually had to go in. So I went back and I got involved. And essentially with the other anaesthetists involved, we got the patient stabilised. I got central line in, we got a, some vasopressor in, we got the patient stabilised and I left and finished off my patient and then had a little debrief rest period in the staff room. Given that I had become quite familiar with this patient, to go through that situation was unsettling and I just wanted to calm myself down at the end of it. While I was sitting there having a cup of coffee and uh, contemplating my next patient, the arrest bell went and it was uh, the same patient. So I went back in there. This time I didn't have a patient on the table and they were doing CPR and there was no end title CO2 trace at that stage. And she was in pulseless electrical activity. I took over the arrest and managed after 30 minutes of CPR, <laughs> I think, I haven't told this story for a long time, but it's a long time ago and I think I threw everything at her, including the kitchen sink. And I'm, I'm always a bit reluctant to say this, but I actually gave some calcium as well. After I gave some calcium at the 30-minute mark, uh, one of my colleagues, again, this is a reminder of how important CRM principles are and making sure that people feel free to speak up. Uh, one of my colleagues walked in and said, Dave, the, your CPR's good. The entitled CO2 trace, I can see a waveform. He said, you're doing well. And that sort of inspired me to keep going. And sure enough, we gave some more adrenaline and, and eventually she got her blood pressure back. We stabilised, I took her to ICU, but I really left the hospital with a heavy heart that day because it was a long resuscitation and I felt that it took a long time. It's the chaos of a resuscitation, unexpected, people everywhere trying to make sense of and collate all the information being thrown at you and, you know, significant cognitive load. Whether I'm recalling it accurately or not, I can't be sure. But the next morning I went to see her in ICU just to see what had happened. And she was extubated sitting out of the hospital bed 
and a bit teary, but happy to be alive and very thankful. Wow. And that got the ball rolling for me because I didn't like the feeling of not having a very slick, standard, protocolized routine for that type of resuscitation. And in fact, that's in the context of being a cardiac anaesthetist and being very used to having all the resuscitation drugs at my fingertips. But I was caught a little bit off guard when it was in a patient where it's totally unexpected and you've got to get all the drugs drawn up. Think about what drugs you're going to use. They're not just there in your pumps at your fingertips. So I had to rethink how I approached all of that. And I thought, If I was in that situation, then I suspect quite a few other anaesthetists might have been in the same situation. So it got me thinking about a quick reference handbook, the QRH, as you find in the cockpit of an aircraft. It seems a little bit stale talking about it now because it's been done to death over the last 15 to 20 years with the aviation analogy and checklists and cognitive aids. But back then it was relatively new and I thought we need a quick reference handbook for anesthesia. We need a QRH. That's how the idea came about. When I was finishing off the third simulation that I had done over 18 months, I was determined I wasn't going to be in that position again. The instructors said, just keep the scenarios to yourselves because it'll spoil it for others that are coming to the simulator. And I understood why they said that and why they would want that. But on the plane flying home, I thought, no, I'm not going to do that. That's the last thing I want to do. I want to make everybody aware of what they could be confronted with so that they can think about it and plan for it. So the concept of having 30 odd scenarios hanging off the anesthetic machine that registrars and consultants can look at and flick through during the long cases or test each other on or rehearse, I thought was a much better idea than the 12-month or 24-month or three-yearly simulation. Sounds like you were very ahead of your time. Why am I not surprised? (laughs) I think that's flattering. I'm not necessarily (laughs) convinced it's accurate. It it made me think sometimes a resus is messy because it's just messy. Yeah. There's, there's a lot to process. And I'm sure all the anaesthetists or anesthesiologists out there listening would say, yeah, yeah, you know, that's all part of the course. That's what we do. That's what we're trained for. And that's true. But the human factor side of things and dealing with the added stress involved of the suddenness and all those other factors other than just the patient not behaving appropriately can make decision-making very much more difficult. That's something that I've noticed in the latter part of my career that the emergency medicine guys do very well in their team approach to resuscitations that seems to be embedded in their training and in their process. Now, it's slightly different because very often they're notified ahead of time that they've got patients coming in and they set themselves up and they have a briefing session before they proceed and they know who's going to do what. In our situation, the most stressful ones are obviously the unexpected cases and we haven't got all of that sorted out. So we've got to sort of quickly get that into action. The criticisms that emerged when I first started to promote this, and it's not an original concept. I came in at the tail end of all the years of work that David Gabber at Stanford 
had done in terms of crisis management and cognitive aids. So that part of it wasn't the the original component. I suppose what was was making it look very presentable, easily accessible and putting it all together in a one-stop shop so that you didn't have cards stuck up on the wall or hanging off the machine. I'm very keen on design, as you know, Susie. I understood just how powerful that can be in terms of getting people to engage because all of us have experienced over the years algorithms and airway algorithms that just put us to sleep or cause us more stress than what they're supposed to do, which is reduce our cognitive load and help us come to a a decision. So I think that's where the manual comes in. When you're dealing with all these other factors, if you've just got a page open that you can check off that you've done those things, you don't have to follow it, you know, point by point. For me, I've used it on a few occasions with massive hemorrhage, with anaphylaxis. And I think the the greatest benefit is that it just reduces my anxiety that I might have missed something. I can just look and say, yeah, yeah, we've done that. Oh, yeah, temperature. Yeah. Are we warming, etc.? This version that I've got now, the latest version, mm-hmm. it's the second edition? It first came out in 2011. Cambridge University Press published it. But that was a bittersweet. It was very exciting at the time for me to be published by Cambridge University Press. But when you sign up with a publishing company, you lose that degree of control. And as many of us know, as anaesthetists, we're control freaks and we have particular ideas about the way we want things done. And I knew that the way it was presented and how it felt and how it functioned was going to be extremely important, not just the content but how the user interfaced with it. And Cambridge were very helpful, but they operate in a different paradigm to what I operate in. And they published it and it was nice to see it out there, but it wasn't necessarily the format that I would have wanted. They gave me my copyright back after about 18 months because I was such a pain that they decided, let's just get rid of this guy. We're never going to make him happy. So from there, I thought, right, I'll set up my own publishing company. I didn't want to just do a cheap backyard self-publishing thing, but I used the designers that had worked with me drafting up the concepts and uh, we established a little company and we, we work out of a graphic design studio in Perth and that's when I set up Lewin Press. And now we've got three manuals published and we've got two more in the pipeline. So from little things, bigger things grow. And it's still a very much a very boutique boutique publishing company. But the beauty of it is that with the internet and online resources, we can reach globally, but also we have total control. So we have quality control and we know exactly how it's to look and how we're going to present it. I'm still always very impressed when I hear that you've started your own publishing company. I don't know many anaesthetists who've accomplished that. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, perhaps it's talking it up a, a bit much, but, you know, the first edition that Lewin Press published was in 2013. And then we published the second edition in 2017. And I think that one's going to hold for quite a while now in that format because we like the way it works. We changed the colour coding so that the colours meant something rather than just looking pretty. And we've had really good feedback from it. And with the subsequent resuscitation crisis manual and the perfusion crisis manual, that format seems to be quite flexible. Let's talk through that format a little bit. 
What are some of the key features that make this manual different to, say, the one that was published by Cambridge? The biggest difference was the size. So it's a little bit bigger in size than the initial Cambridge manual, but the paper was the key difference. It's very expensive paper because it's a synthetic type of paper so that it makes it water-resistant and so you can spill blood on it and stuff and wipe it off and it should hold up. So by controlling our own publishing and not being motivated by profit, it meant that we could get a quality product out there with the right paper without actually having to worry about whether we were going to make a certain margin on it. So that's the fundamental difference. People look at this and they say, that's pretty simple. Borshoff, what are you talking about? There's not much to that. And that's how it looks. And that's true. But literally thousands of hours have gone in to distilling that information down and maybe hundreds of hours. Maybe I'm sort of getting a bit carried away saying thousands, but it felt like thousands. But trying to simplify directives so that they can't be misunderstood, that there's no ambivalence that it is absolutely clear and there's no room for error. You want to waste no time in time-pressured scenarios. I would write these protocols based on guidelines and then I would send them to good anaesthetic colleagues and they would give me feedback and say, what do you mean by this or what do you mean by that? Which was very helpful. And so key features, the size of the manual, the synthetic paper, the fact that it had to be robust, And then, of course, you've got key features of cognitive aid design. That area in itself has grown enormously in the last 10 or 15 years. And then you have experts in cognitive aids and human factors like Stu Marshall, who've done PhDs and this sort of thing. But when I was starting with these aids, I was designing them with the graphic designer involved so that I could look at it and think, yes, I could manage that in a crisis that I'm not going to be overwhelmed when that I open that page or if I want to delegate it to somebody, they can manage it. And even if it's a non-anesthesiologist that's been given the manual to read out, if you're using a reader in that scenario, it's clear and easily expressed. Minimalist is perhaps the best way to describe it, you know, the minimalist design concept. It certainly is hard, I think, to achieve simplicity. Talk me through the colour coding of it. When we published the first edition, we got seven or eight reviews across different journals internationally, and they were all very positive. When it's your baby, any negative feedback or any constructive feedback is taken to heart. And I remember one of the reviews saying, the colours don't mean anything. And it, it wasn't even mentioned in a judgmental way he was just doing his job as a reviewer. That sort of stuck with me. I thought, yeah, he's right, really. It looks good and people are engaged with it, but it would be nice if the colours meant something. So that's when we brought out the second edition, we changed the colour arrangement so that there were coloured sections according to the systems that we were dealing with. Now, when authors send in their drafts, I'm already thinking like this. How can I divide this up into a section? What section would it come under? What would be the major headings? That's a key part of whether it's going to work or not. I think in this day and age with so much information coming out, in most, hopefully all, but most operating theatres now, there's an MH box, there's the anaphylaxis cards. 
Are you finding that a lot of the things that are in here are, are ending up in their own little kits in theatre or do you think that a lot of theatres or a lot of workplaces might not necessarily have that information at their fingertips? That's a good question, Susie. I was never really concerned about that. I'm happy for people to get the information wherever they get it from, as long as it works for them and they know exactly where the MH box is and they know where the anaphylaxis cards are. That doesn't work for me. That's why I wanted the one-stop shop. I thought about this as I was writing. You can manage MH just from the crisis manual, but because the MH box has become such a significant thing, I felt that I had to include that as part of the protocol. But also in the back of my mind, I was concerned that it could confuse the picture of people working through one protocol and then having to go and get a box to work through the other. I spoke to Sue Marshall uh, a couple of years back and I don't quite know what happened to this, but he was looking at doing a study on this as to whether the multiple card systems were as effective or more effective than the one linear directive that you get in the manual type format. The way I see it is just being aware that there are these cognitive aids. I actually never was a great advocate for using them absolutely in the heat of the moment and following it point by point. There are times when it's helpful in massive hemorrhage, anaphylaxis or postpartum hemorrhage or cardiac arrest, PEA or VF. They can actually be really helpful in the heat of the moment because it can steady people it can help reduce the startle effect and get people on the right track. But I don't think you can underestimate the importance of its proximity to the anaesthetist on a daily basis. The whole design with a rod at the side and the ring is for it to be exposed so that people are constantly reminded that you're always just one step away from needing support if you're not careful or if you're caught unawares. I've got a great photo during one of the cardiac cases of the registrar just sitting there during bypass at the end of the table, flicking through the crisis manual. And the teaching aspect of it, the self-testing aspect of it, the rehearsal aspect of it, the little surge of adrenaline that you get when you start reading the directives, even outside of a crisis, thinking, oh, would I have remembered that? I think it's all part of embedding resuscitation management into anaesthetic culture. I can add one more to that, which is how I came to look at it. And I was ruminating, as you do, a few days after the resuscitation. Did I do everything? And I thought, I know where I can check. So it also, for me, was a very useful place to go back and have some reflection. And thankfully, in my case, for reassurance. Yeah. I think that's probably one of the big roles, really, is just reassure you that you're doing a good job. The ASA has played a significant role with the crisis manual long before I got a position on the ASA, I might add. I think it was Richard Grutzner and Andrew Miller just saw the benefit of something like this, and they were very keen to support it, as was the European Society. Sven Stander, a Swiss colleague, was very into this as well, and he was keen to support it. So... I think the ASA, by providing these manuals to all the advanced trainees, has done a really good thing because I now get feedback from young consultants when they meet me in the corridor and they say, we love that manual. Before the fellowship exam, we were just working through those scenarios. And I think that is a big part of what the ACM's about. 
if you're working in a hospital where you know these are on the anaesthetic trolley, that's one thing. But if you're going to a hospital, say, where they're not on the anaesthetic trolley, would you just routinely carry one of these in your bag? Yes. And I think a lot of people do, or on your phone, or on your computer, or on your iPad, because you've got the e-interactive PDF. I've got to say thank you for that, because that's what I ended up doing, is I downloaded the PDF, and it's fantastic. And just remind me of the ASA deal. It's, it's not even a deal as such. The ASA has just took it upon themselves as part of membership to provide the advanced trainees with their own personal copy of the Anesthetic Crisis Manual. They've been doing that for at least six years now. Great work. That goes a long way towards changing attitudes. When we released the Resuscitation Crisis Manual, that's the manual that I co-edited with Scott Weingart uh, in the US. And Scott's a bit of a rock star in the critical care world and emergency medicine. And so it got a lot of coverage through podcasts and through his website. But some of the more testosterone-driven, chest-beating alpha males out there in the pointy edge of resuscitation and retrieval, I think one of them wrote on his website, If you need a manual to do a resuscitation, step aside and just let one of us get on with it. That sort of attitude prevails. Although having said that, you don't need a manual to be a very good doctor and a very good resuscitationist or a very good anaesthetist. However, it's just as I have got older in my profession and you start to worry more and more about things that can go wrong because you've seen so many different things over your career, it's just a bit of a tension reliever to have that as a reference if you need it. Well, often we're doing things in parallel, not in series. Yes. So that yep. would also potentially add to more complexity to manage versus someone reading down a list. I'm sure there's been a lot of human factors experts looking at this. Susie, I think that's the key issue. Initially, it was all about the cognitive aid. I was very much aware of human factors when I was designing these cognitive aids. But the older I get, the more I realise that it's more about how people communicate, use the manual and delegate in the operating theatre rather than absolutely meticulously sticking to the directives in the manual. And if one of the good things to come from this is the whole concept of crew resource management and learning to communicate properly, which is what a lot of simulations about. You've mentioned the resuscitation crisis manual. What's the difference between that and the ACM? The resuscitation crisis manual is essentially critical care and ED. Scott reviewed the anaesthetic crisis manual on his podcast and Subsequent to that, he approached me and said, I'd really like to do something like this for ED. Would you be interested? And I said, obviously I would. It's a great idea. And essentially, we put out a call for authors and topics. We got 35 or 40 topics. And then Scott sourced experts in their field, not the expert, but people that were respected and actively engaged in those areas on a daily basis. They wrote the protocols of the topics that we had settled on. And from there, we then spent the next 15, 16 months editing, maybe 18 months. So that's worked well for ED. That's been hugely popular and obviously with Scott's reach. And then more recently, we've released the Perfusion Crisis Manual. And that's from some of my 
old teachers in cardiac anesthesia in Western Australia, Steve Same and Paul Sadlier were co-editors. And a similar process involved, and we've done that for cardiopulmonary bypass and ECMO. And that's turned out really well. And we just got our first review in one of the overseas journals, and it was really positive. So that's been exciting for all of us. Wow, well done. I remember hearing about the resuscitation crisis manual through Scott Weingart. I do like his podcast. I think he's one of yeah, my me too. One of my faves. People who want to buy their own version of these, where can they get them from? So they just buy them online at lewinpress.com.au and it's Lewin, which is L-E-E-U-W-I-N. We just wanted a nice Western Australian name. So if people buy this from lewinpress.com.au, they can yeah. get the hard copy sent out to them. That gives them access to the online version as well? Yeah, they get both. The people that buy the hard copy get both, but you can also just buy the online version separately. <laughs> it's so this decade, isn't it? Just being able to get all your content electronically nowadays. We're still miles behind, Susie. For the last six years, I've been working with a colleague in the UK trying to get this sort of stuff integrated into our anaesthetic delivery systems. It's interesting how slowly things move in the world of anaesthesia. I understand that we have to be conservative because we're dealing with human lives here, but we're still on a fairly antiquated system and we could very much have this sort of stuff at our fingertips. You're already thinking to the next decade by the sounds of it. <laughs> <laughs> I want to just go back. When you mentioned the resus at the start, the one that inspired you to write this book, yep. you mentioned you were reluctant to give calcium and you ended up giving it. Calcium had fallen by the wayside for resuscitation. It was no longer part of the protocols. And that, that's, that was my reluctance. When I was training, calcium was part of resuscitation. And then the studies came out that suggested that it did more harm than good. And then it was removed from the resuscitation guidelines. And, you know, the evidence for those resuscitation guidelines is all tenuous at best. For those of us who had grown up in cardiac anesthesia and squeezing in some calcium and looking at what it did to the ventricular contractility and blood pressure, it was embedded in the back of my mind there. And I, I thought, you know what, I've got nothing to lose. I'm going to give some calcium. And she'd been on diuretics as well. And I think it's not outrageous to do that. It was just something that had gone out of vogue. And the patient, she had to go back to theatre because she dislocated. And that's when she arrested. And then, of course, they had to abandon the procedure. So she had to be anaesthetised again once she was resuscitated in ICU to have the procedure done. Oh, jeez. And then she didn't want anyone else to anaesthetise her except me. Oh, and did so, you? So I... I did. And we finished the operation and it worked fine for the next 10 years for her. I think she died at the age of 74. I saw her twice in the US. She visited me here. She took out my family out to dinner in California. And, you know, it, it was it was a really lovely part of my career. That's lovely. And that was my last question. It was, did you keep in contact and, and did she know that she was the inspiration for this manual? She did. I dedicated the first manual to her. And in fact, dare I say it, they phoned me two days before she died. She was in hospital with cardiac failure. And we actually had a chat, I think, about 48 hours before she died. It was a really poignant moment, I can tell you. Wow, that's so touching. That mm. is really lovely. I think it says a lot about you as a person, David. 
Oh, that's very nice, Susie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it. I mean, you know, we all have patients that touch us. As you say, they remind us of our mum or our younger sister. But, you know, there was obviously something there. And I mm. think you both knew that. So I think that's all wonderful and wonderful that the legacy of that is this wonderful manual and that it is shared widely and it just keeps going and going. Yeah, hopefully it, it will for years to come. And the next one is the Mountain Rescue Crisis Manual followed by the Pediatric Resuscitation <laughs> Crisis Manual. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. You did say you have a few in the pipeline. Look, it's going to take a little bit of effort to get those two out. The Pediatric Resus Manual, I think, will be a winner. It'll be interesting to see how we go with the Mountain Rescue Crisis Manual because that's a, a collaboration with a Canadian guy who's a commercial pilot, uh, emergency medicine doctor, elite skier and mountain rescuer. Oh, my goodness. Yes, exactly. That'll be interesting to see. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks, Great. Susie. Nice to chat and well done on everything. Well, now you know the incredible, touching story behind the anaesthetic crisis manual and what an impressive person is David. If you would like to have a closer look at these manuals, I'll put a link to Lewin Press in the show notes. If you're an ASA member, then please log into the ASA website and look up the Anaesthetic Crisis Manual under Publications, and you'll be able to find the promo code that will let you have the manual at a discounted price. Also, if you're a member of the ASA and you are currently a basic trainee, you will receive a copy for free from the ASA once you become an advanced trainee. We thought this could be a good way to support you as you take on more independent practice and that it might come in handy for studying for the part two exam. Okay, well, I hope you enjoyed listening and stay safe out there. This podcast was produced by the Australian Society of Anesthetists. More podcasts can be found on the ASA website, asa.org.au. Music was La Toile Dance by Maidan, which can be found on the free music archive website. We hope you enjoyed listening.